You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this, this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode. Coming up, we have highlights from a panel discussion held at Unsound Festival 2018 about East African music and its wider context. And Matt McDermott is in LA, uncovering the world of listening bars. But first, I want to introduce you to Pink Noise. Pink Noise is a zine which aims to welcome women into the dance music world. If you felt curious about navigating a pair of CDJs, ever wondered where your nearest Ableton workshop is, or wanted to know the logistics of putting on a club night, this zine has you covered. With insightful interviews from the likes of Umfang and Object Blue and a strong aesthetic, founders Moira and Anastasia have been shipping the zine across the globe. Orders have been placed in Texas, Brazil, Amsterdam and Australia. I went to meet the girls to find out more about their zine and why bringing this sort of information to the surface is so important to them. My name is Moira Letby and I'm the creative director of Pink Noise Zine. I design the zine and I also play a huge role in the curation of the content within the zine. My name is Anastasia and I help um, with a large part of the curation of the content in the zine. I helped with the editor's notes, I wrote an opinion piece in the zine, I accumulated a lot of the interviews and I wrote up a lot of the articles. And I wrote the manifesto too. <laughs> we both did actually. Here at Pink Noise, we declare that all women be given an equal opportunity. Long gone are the days where we will be booked based on our appearance, heckled on the decks or undermined of our skills. We will no longer be taken advantage of and are here to stay. Watch out world. We're going to fucking wallop you. Yes. <laughs> Pink Noisine is a magazine for women predominantly um, interested in electronic music and production. We like to talk a lot about like the clubbing scene and the environment and just dance music in general. I started off three years ago. It's like a fun educational way of like introducing electronic music to people who maybe have no idea where to start and or a bit lost or intimidated by the scene. And then it's also for people who are well into the scene as well and like want to develop. Talk me through your process so far for collecting and eliminating content for the zine. We kind of met up together and we discussed what we'd want to see in the zine. For example, one of the things we featured was how to put on your own club night. Like a lot of zines are just full of pictures and pictures and pictures and pictures, which is great. But we wanted something that would actually inform people and be useful. The nice thing about what we do is like we both personally are at the start of our journeys in terms of like learning how to use Ableton and sort of like make my own music and Anastasia's learn to mix at the moment. It's nice that we're on the same sort of journey as the people that are reading it. There's so many things that people do and others peer in from the outside and wonder, how the hell are you doing that? And it's not always stuff you can Google. Pink Noise, it's kind of like a, a sort of one stop for women who are interested in DJing and production in a way. Tell me about what it was like where you grew up in terms of the music scene. Where did you fit in or did you not fit in? So um, Ashbourne is, it, 
It is not. Did we fit in? No. Uh, <laughs> There's no clubbing scene. Like, this place is like pop world. If I wanted to go out growing up and I wanted to go to any sort of like dance music night, I'd have to get an hour's bus to Nottingham and go to Stealth. It's just, it just doesn't exist. Like, if you go out in Derby City, like, at the moment, there's nothing there. And, like, in Ashbourne, you go to the pub. Where we come from, I don't want to sag it off, but I, I do have to go in a little bit when I talk about Ashbourne because... It's not the most kind of cultured place, but yeah, I don't want to slag it off. I do have a lot of hope for where we come from. I think that Derby, the nearest city to where we're from, is just waiting for something to hit it music-wise. Like, it's just waiting for someone to open up that club. It's kind of like when you turn 18, you're about to hit town for the first time, the city, and you go out and you're like, oh my God, I'm 18, it's gonna be amazing. And then you get there and, it's just a letdown, it's just a really big anti-climax, um, and yeah. When you hear about um, kind of like how the whole Manchester scene started, that happened because Manchester used to have absolutely nothing, and then suddenly there was an explosion and it was amazing. Derby could really do with that. I can't wait for the day that happens. There is someone who's just started a club night though. Um, I don't know his name, but the night's called Primary Colours and it's an acid house night and it looks great. So I, I wish him a lot of luck with that. How do you think you got into electronic music then if there wasn't really like a scene around town? Before I came to London, I used to listen to people like um, Gold Panda and like Joy Orbison and like classic people. And then when I moved to London like three years ago, and I started going out, realised that all these DJs were like on my doorstep. I remember like the first like proper like really sick night I went to is I saw Jeremy Underground at Phonics. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then from there, like discovering like loads of new artists and like meeting those people that have their own labels and like make their own music. But like the reason why I started off Pink Noise is because I used to go out in that sort of scene in London and like I was like the only girl at the front. It seemed that way. I mean, obviously there was other girls there, but I just felt really alone. The scene is not inclusive or friendly. Like the amount of stuff I've seen or had done to me in the club space it's just it's not inviting like you go out and you're being groped left right and center and like security being rude to you and like I was just like this is not the this is not fair like why is it like this like I like this music why should I go out and have to experience this but um yeah I, th I think mostly through my mates they started listening to it and like remember the first like proper like sort of dance music festival I went to was like Park Life in 2014, 15 and like I went completely sober like didn't even drink and um I loved it like it was just so sick to see like these people play and I got really like involved in it from then I think. I have loved electronic music from a very young age. Luckily, my parents have really, really great music taste. My dad, he introduced me to like the Chemical Brothers and the Prodigy. It kind of like made me want to do filmmaking because I would listen to the songs and I'd get ideas for music videos and I'd just get so wrapped up in that world. Okay, let's talk about some key pieces of content that you've already put out. What's been standing out to you in particular? I was really proud with our workshop directory. I think it's, it's dead useful, like, I mean, obviously there's not exact times and dates of these places, but if someone wants to learn how to make music, it's a massive list of all the collectives in the UK. I came up with the name Pink Pages because I wanted it to be like a 
like yellow pages but for like women in electronic music a lot of the workshops are quite london centric so like we kind of like because we're from ashbourne like a little town in derbyshire so we like to sort of like steer away from like the london centric thing and like because there's a massive scene in places like glasgow and like newcastle manchester like humongous bristol try not to focus on like the london scene in terms of content like that was the, the thing that i was really proud of my favourite would probably have to be the how to put on your own club night guide because I just think it's one of those things that like everyone who loves dance music kind of dreams of doing it's like putting on their own rave what we did to get the information for that was um, there was a disc woman night in Manchester and um, there was a guy called Robbie Bloomer who's a member of a collective called High Hoops and he always puts on insane nights in Manchester I asked him if he would kindly kind of let me shadow him during the whole process of putting it on. He told me all the ins and outs of how to book them and timings and what to do, what not to do. I also asked another girl called Sophia Raisin from Bloom Collective. And she, again, was so, so, so informative, giving me so much information so that there was, I like to think there was nothing left uncovered when it comes to that guide. So yeah, I'm really proud of that guide. Okay, let's talk about the future. What topics are you looking to cover over the next edition of the zine? The next issue is all about speaking your mind and it's like a more of like a opinion piece based one. There's still going to be like the educational side which we kind of pride ourselves on but um, yeah, we, we want it to be a lot more sort of hard hitting and controversial kind of like more vocal I would say um, so like you were saying more opinion pieces and um, more of a political kind of tone to it. Um, let's talk quickly about uh, the electronic music scene and where you guys see it and like what changes do you want to see? There's a few changes I think that there should be a safe drugs policy at the end of the day like people are going to be taking them I just think that there needs to be drug testing kits and stuff available. I don't think it's working the way it is at the moment, so like I think that needs to change for sure in terms of the clubbing scene. I would like to see people go mental dancing more. People are perhaps a little bit more conscious. It's a lot more kind of like constrained in a way. The dance music industry is really judgmental at the moment. Like I think that that's one thing that really pisses me off and is always I feel like there's a constant need for people to prove themselves and to prove how much they know about it. Um, I think the whole point of dance music is for people to have fun. I don't think there should be like an elitism about it. Like I think people should just be able to like go out and have fun and listen to the music that they want to listen to. Like I know a lot and like there's a massive like judgment on like say if you listen to like you couldn't listen to like Drake and Disc Woman at the same time. Like, I remember one thing that used to really irritate me growing up and like, I remember like a lot of boys that I was friends with used to always like quiz me on. Say if I liked an artist, they'd be like, oh my God, name your favorite five songs. And it's like, why should I have to prove that to you? Like, I know a lot of people that like electronic music, but they don't necessarily know who they're listening to. And I know a lot of people that like electronic music and they know exactly who they're listening to. And I think both is fine. I think if you're having fun, and you're listening to what you want to listen to, that's fine. And also, another thing that I would like to change that I just thought of is the really expensive ticket prices. I can't afford to pay £25 to go to Oval Space, and I like all the people that play there. I think it should be more accessible. I just think it's crazy. <laughs> but yeah, they're the things I would change. <laughs> 
What are your aspirations and visions for Pink Noise? It's been crazy in the last year. Like I started this off three years ago. I was literally emailing like a ton of people on a fluke. The main one which was amazing for me at that time was a disc woman one because I was like, that's crazy, like as if they're giving me an interview. Um, yeah, I think the aspirations of Pink Noise are just to keep delivering great content that helps people, that inspires people, that is useful to people, that as an example to people. Japan's culture of audiophile music spaces is inspiring a new wave of venues across the globe. This month, Matt McDermott stopped by two listening bars that have recently opened in Los Angeles. Listening bar culture has spread from Tokyo's back streets to cities around the world. DJs are bringing what were previously considered to be home listening records into bars and clubs kitted out with audiophile systems. Their spirit land in brilliant corners in London, Hasoy in Stockholm, and La Milla Grossa in New York. This fall, listening bars came to LA. Within a couple weeks of each other, In Cheap's Clothing opened in the Arts District, and Goldline opened over in the rapidly gentrifying Highland Park neighborhood. They're two very different venues dedicated to vinyl and good sound, and they demonstrate the divergent approaches to audiophile bars, as well as the changing club culture that's allowed for their proliferation. We started out in the Arts District at In Cheap's Clothing, a visually stunning bar hidden behind a pizza parlor. We stopped in on a quiet Sunday morning. Wood, brushed leather booths, and Japanese whiskey fit into a tan and brown color scheme that make the room feel like the inside of a Klipsch loudspeaker. The bar's creative director is Zach Cowie, a DJ, former record label employee, and music supervisor, who was recently nominated for a Grammy for his work on the Netflix show Master of None. Mostly, he's a vinyl and hi-fi nerd. Japanese listening bars, they're supposed to feel like many things in Japan, like kind of like a secret that you kind of wander into. When did you learn about that culture or experience it? I would say that's a bit of a misconception to call it a secret because it's, from my experience, just a, a part of the culture. Um, and there are so many of them, which is hilarious being here because we get every night there's like five people being like, JBS, JBS, JBS. And I just go, what other ones have you been to? <laughs> and people are like, there's more? I was like, there's like five on that street. <laughs> you know? It kind of came on my radar from audio, not records, hi-fi and vintage hi-fi. I, I became very enamored with Gerard 301 turntables. And when I was doing like image searches on them, most of that content is from these bars. I was more interested in the way these places sounded versus like what records they had there. Yeah, it's, it's more than an obsession at this point. A good system is a magnifying glass. You know, if somebody half-assed a mix, half-assed a mastering job, half-assed a pressing, you and everybody in that space is going to know about it pretty quick. <laughs> what are some listening bars that inspired you specifically? My favorite, uh, I mean, it's probably my favorite place I've ever listened to music is, is a place called The Lion in Shibuya. Um, and that they don't allow photos of any type but there's some sneaky ones online if you do an image search. And they are 
almost entirely classical music, and it's sort of programmed where you show up. I mean, it's all in Japanese, but you know, it's explained to me. They give you this little menu, and it, it actually is saying which pieces will be played that day. And they play the classical record in full, A and B side. Then somebody goes up to a little, like almost karaoke mic, and announces what the next record's gonna be when they play it. And that place is like pretty much just no talking. It may have been a church, it's very set up like that, where it's a bunch of pews facing this amazing entire like floor to ceiling custom speaker stack. And it's two floors too. And on both floors, you're listening to the same stack of speakers. But that place was everything to me. And we took a lot of inspiration on the way our wall looks from their speaker stack. Zach talked me through the bespoke sound system at In Cheap's Clothing, as well as the record collection stored above the bar. Most of your listeners know what a Klipschhorn is. It's the Klipsch giant loudspeaker made very famous by David Mancuso. Um, the speakers have no backs, so they have to be in uh, perfect corners, and they use the corner of the room to kind of complete the bass bin. So the angles on our walls are sort of dictated by what the speaker needs, but just how we kind of paneled it is sort of emulating the way the stacks look at, at Lion. The decor here is very minimal. You know, I want what we're listening to to be the star here. We have two collections. There's a one for the daytime that's uh, a lot mellower. It's, it's sort of what I, what I listen to at home. <laughs> a lot of ambient records, a lot of new age records. Uh, some classical, some modern classical. And then the nighttime collection, there's a lot of jazz here, but we're by no means a jazz bar. It's kind of just what sounds best in here. Mm -hmm. The more space around the musicians, the better it's going to sound in this place. Because mm. the, uh, the imaging that our system is capable of uh, really can put you like into a studio with the musicians. And so for the hi-fi nerds out there, can you, can you, <laughs> Where's walk, <my> people? <laughs> can you walk me through the actual system? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> so the, the heart of this system are two Garrard 301 turntables that I sourced. I had them restored by a guy in Idaho called, his, his company's name is Woodsong Audio. Um, they're in custom oversized plinths done by a guy named Martin, whose company called Vinylista in Germany. Uh, then they have Thomas Schick 12-inch tone arms. It's another German guy. The cartridges we use are custom modifications that Thomas Schick made. They're moving magnet. Um, I personally am, am a moving coil guy at home, <laughs> but for the, for the kind of usability of this system, because the, the, we're playing records, you know, 12 hours a day, uh, it made more sense to kind of go with a moving magnet. You can also back cue on it, which is nice. Uh, then we've got a Condessa Carmen Rotary Mixer uh, from our friends Condessa in Australia. That sends a signal up to an AudioNote M5 preamplifier. Uh, it's AudioNote UK. And that sends out two signals. One goes to an AudioNote Jinro Sochu amplifier. It's single-ended triode. Uh, powered by a 211 tube, it's about 16 watts a channel. And that is what fuels the Klipshorns. The Klipshorns are 73s. They're, they were my 
personal speaker in my house for about 10 years. Uh, and they've got a bunch of modifications that I did. Uh, so they're far from stock at this point. <laughs> and the other signal that that preamplifier emits goes to a line magnetic 218 amplifier. It's another single ended triode, 211 tube. And that powers a pair of Klipsch heresies that are behind the bar. And those have been fully Frankensteined by me and sort of ripped into two pieces. If you see there, the, the high mid-range drivers are above the bar with the crossovers. And all that's in that cabinet is the woofer. Can you tell me about In Cheap's Clothing's motto, how that reflects a general philosophy behind the bar and how that's been going? It's uh, Our phrase is to hear more, say less, which um, kind of says it all. You know, if, if you're here to listen to the music, don't talk so much. We're having a tough time on the weekends here because we're packed. As much as we sort of brief our guests about what happens in here, we lose them every Friday and Saturday night. And we're having a debate right now if we should just acknowledge that and give up or if we need to start like kind of being dicks about it. So we're coming up with a few point plan to see if we can pull this off without just like walking up and shushing people. A lot of people just want to rage and we're trying to let them know politely that this isn't the spot. After speaking with Zach, InCheap's clothing opened its doors for the day. A few customers wandered in to read or drink tea while Laurie Spiegel's minimalist classic, The Expanding Universe, played. A week later, InCheap's clothing hosted a night dedicated to the Vanguard Jazz, Electronic, and Classical label ECM. Though InCheap's clothing can get noisy on the weekends, Callie hopes the bar will serve as a place to listen to deep records on a world-class sound system in contemplative silence. Goldline, on the other hand, feels more like a house party, with DJs pulling from an extraordinary in-house record collection. Its co-founder is Peanut Butter Wolf, the DJ and vinyl obsessive who has been running the legendary Stone's Throw Records out of an office upstairs from the bar for nearly two decades. As the founder of Stone's Throw, he's put out music from the likes of Mad Lib, Jay Dilla, Dame Funk, and Gifted and Blessed. The 7,500 records he stocked a bar with are appropriately diverse. I just set up a bunch of crates of records from floor to ceiling, and I had my friends DJ with it, and I, it was really fun, and I wanted to do a bar with something like that, but I didn't know that the Japanese bars existed that were already doing that. When I found out, then I'm like, well, then we can do it now. Like, People understand it more or whatever, so... Why do you think LA's crowd seems primed for this right now? I mean, there's a lot of good bars like that are music-focused, Zanzibar and um, Echo, Echoplex. And, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking, I guess, more on the east side, like where I live. But ours is a yeah, different experience, and it's a lot smaller than those places. And it's I feel that it's just more a hangout. Like, we're not really like saying, okay, this person's DJing this day or that day. It's just kind of like, come by when you can, and hopefully you'll enjoy the music. 
just seeing the support of the people who are there and getting like a yeah a lot of um, positive feedback and stuff so far. Can you explain the music policy? It's pretty simple. Yeah, no bringing records in, no computers. You know, it's really straightforward. Just use what's there, and most DJs are really receptive to that because they haven't done that before. You know, like seven thousand records there for people to choose from. So yeah, the the concept was just to see different people's interpretation given the same template, the same records. You know, honestly, I've been buying a lot of records this year with the bar in mind as well. The collection in there is everything is. Chosen by myself, but some of it I've had since it came out in the 80s, or you know, then mostly music from the 60s to the late 90s, I guess. But a lot of the stuff I've found over the past year and a half, maybe I would buy it for the bar and put it in a box, basically not hear it till the bar. So now I'm like, well, what is this? I don't. That's I like that. Like, it's been fun, like kind of seeing who does what, you know. Egyptian lover came by we went to lunch and then he was still around at five and he DJed just an hour you know just kind of impromptu and stuff one thing that stands out about Goldline is that there isn't really a crazy collector vibe around the records um, the vinyl isn't treated with this insane reverence you're letting DJs you trust play them and that seems to stand out as being different from the way it goes in Japan where only bartenders can play the records yeah, my understanding of the Japanese bars is that the bartender DJs uh, primarily. I just know so many DJs, and I yeah, I just like seeing what they play. So far, everyone who's DJed has really been cool with records. Like nothing's getting ruined, or you know, yeah. if you're like a Discogs person, like a record collector, the stuff that's VG plus is gonna become like a G plus or something yeah, like yeah. over the years. But my girlfriend, because I've been buying records for so long, like she like teases me that I have enough where I don't even have the time to listen to them all any you know she's like it'd be one thing if you're listening to them like all the time but I don't see you listening to them I see you buying more and so this was my way to like show her that now other people could listen to them and I can still go out and buy more I guess Colleen Cosmo Murphy was about a decade ahead of the current listening bar trend a regular DJ at David Mancuso's The Loft she took the late legend's sound system principles to heart and started up the Lost Sister Party in London, Lucky Cloud. About a decade ago, she launched Classic Album Sundays, a daytime event centered around playing a cherished LP in full. We asked her how she went from DJing the loft to playing classic albums from beginning to end at Mellow Sunday afternoon sessions. I had really felt that our listening habits had really drastically changed in the 21st century. I won't be ashamed to say I was a kid in the 70s and a teenager in the 80s. And I worked in record shops and I would have friends over listening to records in my bedroom, you know, and we'd listen together, listen to the entire album. And we might chit chat a bit, but we were really quite focused on the music and sharing it. It wasn't a headphone, earphone experience. It was shared. It was a communal experience. That was one of the reasons why I started Classic Album Sundays, because I wanted to share this experience, the communal experience of listening to music together, to kind of carve out a space and time to show our appreciation of music, to experience music fully and not be multitasking. So we tell the stories behind it and then play it in full on an exquisite hi-fi where people can really immerse themselves into the recording and hear things they haven't heard before and share it with other people. So it was a multifaceted reason why I started Classic Album Sundays. It ticked a lot of different boxes. People realized that music was being taken for granted. 
We came out of an era of the MP3 and shuffle culture and music really being treated like oral wallpaper as opposed to something to focus all of our senses upon. And uh, Classic Album Sundays kind of reminded people why they loved music as opposed to just having it as some kind of oral backdrop or some kind of soundtrack, you know, some kind of score to the, to the rest of our life. It became a focal point. We put it front and center in front of people. Music is one of the most important mediums of communication for human beings, really, I think. And if you can enhance that experience in any way, it's going to really touch people and transform people. And if you can do it in a collective way, in public, it kind of has a lot more gravitas, I think. I mean, I love listening to music on my own and blasting it and just zoning out. That's one thing and it is great. And it's not, I'm not saying listening to music together is more important or better. It's just we had stopped doing that as a culture. We weren't sitting in a room together enjoying an album. I think that's one of the reasons people got inspired by classic album Sundays. And then in terms of audio equipment, with the 80s, audio equipment and, and formats just went downhill. The visual medium became more defined. So you'd have high definition television, film and video became more and more defined, whereas audio formats became less and less defined. And I think all of a sudden, when we spotlighted it and people realized how different it could sound and how they were having these transformative experiences and hearing things they hadn't heard, you know, it caught on. Back at InCheap's clothing, I wanted to know Zach's thoughts on why more listening bars are popping up in L.A. You know, I think it's definitely not a fluke. In America, we're even late. You know, these things have been showing up in the U.K. and around Europe past 10 years or so, and obviously Japan has had them for like 80 years. <laughs> and, you know, I think about this a lot, and I think it's there's a few things to it. The first thing that comes to mind is just we're all getting older. I spent all of my 20s and early 30s in clubs, DJing, partying, warehouses. I still love it. But my personal taste, you know, what me and my friends call home listening, has just changed so much. But what I don't want to let go of is that communal experience. You know, I love sharing records with people. The stuff I want to share now happens to be on the mellow tip. So a place like this makes perfect sense. I think there's also something to the fact that most sound has gotten so bad. And it's just a weird phenomenon. A ton of my friends have started to take sound more seriously and we're working together on it, teaching each other, learning from each other. I think it's a lot like, uh, you know, if you're raised on junk food, you have your first healthy meal, you never want junk food again. So once you start hearing good sound, it's almost unbearable to be in places that don't have it. Me and all my friends, we, we just want a place that we can still hang out, but not have to rage. And this seems to be making a lot of sense to people. So why are people ready for the idea of a listening bar? Here's Cosmo Murphy. I think our lives are so insanely crazy and hectic, and we're all looking to take a bit of a break, number one. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, we are completely bombarded all the time with emails and texts and social media and advertising. We are expected to do 20 things at once at all times and to always be available. And I think that's one of the main reasons, actually, why, why we are so ready to say, you know what? 
I'm turning myself off for an hour and I'm just giving myself over to the music. I think that's a big part of it. I think a lot of it is social and psychological. Then there's the musical side, as I said before, on the musical side, sharing music, changing how we listen to music, you know, changing our listening habits in the 21st century to kind of reflect more of what we did in the 60s, 70s and 80s where we're listening to music collectively and communally. Um, you know, people started to have very isolated listening experiences, walking around with headphones or just being, you know, hooked into their laptop. It's just, it's just them with the music in the background. With everything at our fingertips, it just becomes a bit disposable and cheap. And it's not that kind of refined, emotional experience that we are really kind of craving. In many ways, LA's listening bars feel like a bizarro version of the city's club scene. The late night crowd parties and warehouses swills cheap beer from makeshift bars and listens to house and techno through Function One systems installed just for the night. Listening bars, on the other hand, offer high-end cocktails and air out ambient jazz and post-punk rarities through audiophile turntables and clipped speakers. But despite the superficial differences, we're after the same thing when we turn up to clubs or listening bars, a shared transcendent experience through music. From Tokyo to LA, each listening bar takes a different approach towards a universal goal. At last month's Unsound Festival in Krakow, RA's Aaron Kultate hosted a discussion about East African music and its wider context. The panelists were Arlen Decision, co-founder of Nyenge Nyenge Festival, and Kampaya Bahana, a DJ, writer, activist, and core member of the Nyenge Nyenge crew. Here are some highlights from the chat. I guess I'd like to talk about the origins of Nyenge Nyenge, about how it became to be a, a party first. It was the boutique electronic thing that started it all, yeah. is that right? It was kind of a, trying to connect two separate things. I mean, uh, both me and Derek come from, let's say, you know, free party scenes in Europe and, 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 and raves as well. And it always felt like in Africa somehow there was a bit of a discrepancy between a lot of amazing electronic music being produced throughout the continent that was very ravey to some extent uh, and the parties that went with it. And... Um, so the focus was to start a space within Kampala where we could play a lot more of these sounds, uh, invite DJs, uh, and just have parties that could last you know, all night in the, the, right, the right setting where we were free to do what we wanted, there was uh, no controls, etc. Uh, so yeah, these just uh, developed over time and through that we started meeting a lot more producers that started coming out of the cracks that were kind of interested to you know, get exposed to uh, a wider range of music and themselves were making uh, interesting stuff that there weren't so many traditional platforms to perform in. You know, I mean, when it comes to I mean, the role of the promoter, you know, in, in Europe, you know, there's been a long tradition and culture of promoters taking risks and you know, doing things DIY, but in, in, you know, in Africa, a lot of times the promoter, you know, it's, it's quite cutthroat, there's not a lot of money to play with, you, know, you, you traditionally don't want to take a lot of risks. Couple that with uh, the fact that most traditional sponsorship channels for events are also quite conservative and you know, want to just attract the numbers. So we'll you know, just like, book like, you know, big Jamaican dancehall artists and uh, local pop stars. 
So yeah, I was just trying to like um, create that, that that space, and you know, it's now it's it's changed a lot in the last few years. Like much more commercial events are also like booking GOM artists or bringing you know artists from Angola and West Africa. It started like that, and then as as we found more and more young producers eager to you know try different things out, we started a community studio in Kampala. And then out of that, we also felt that there wasn't really a platform to showcase all these interesting sounds. So that's how the idea of the label came out. So paint us a picture of what um, Kampala was like as a, as a city, as a musical city, um, when you guys started putting on parties. Hollywood, for example, Camp Hero, where you, you started playing, sounds like a pretty interesting spot, fun spot back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I think I missed like the first few parties like people are always like oh did you go to that party in Jinja at the office and I never went to that one <laughs> which I still have FOMO for but um, uh, Kampala you know people really like to dance and really like to go out it has a bit of a reputation in East Africa for being a party city so people are accustomed to the idea of like partying all night but the music tended to be quite mainstream you know a lot of American R&B, Jamaican dance hall, Nigerian Afrobeats, and then the Ugandan ver popular versions of that. Um, and, you know, good to dance to. When I first moved back to Kampala, I danced for like a good five years to that music. But um, then I started hanging out with um, Derek and Darlene and Arlen and, you know, started hearing that there's all kinds of weirder sounds that are being made locally and that there's a real appetite, particularly among, you know, DJs, but also an audience to hear something different. Um, so I think that, you know, now, thanks to Nyege Nyege, but also like a few other festivals and events and parties, um, it's really become like um, much more common to hear uh, different sounds, different <laughs> Uh, electronic music being booked. And you mentioned that you um, first played um, at Hollywood with, with a playlist um, <laughs> of, of tunes that you, you wanted to share. What, what kind of stuff was on that playlist? Um, there was like a lot of Baraka Som Sistema and like MIA, um, people like Blinky Bill, who's um, a Kenyan artist who um, in Kenya, they sort of pioneered an electronic music sound and like engaging with the internet with their band, which was called Just a Band. Um, and he's still making fantastic music and has a new album coming out, like Ero Maniello, um, but also like a lot of like older songs from you know the 60s that like some good sukus that my dad used to you know listen to in the car, Sam Franco. And I was really blown away by the way that people responded um, and it's led to me DJing ever since. <laughs> and what kind of crowd uh, were you pulling um, you know, to those early uh, boutique electronic parties? Yeah, again, uh, a lot of young producers, a lot of uh, people in the art scene, a big Pan-African crowd as well. That were, were, you know, Afri uh, Kampala is a very Pan-African city. There's a big uh, community of uh, South Sudanese, Ethiopians, uh, Kenyans, Tanzanians, Congolese. Um, so, you know, they, they would start coming to the parties. They could hear some of the music from, you know, their countries there. Um, you know, the, the parties got popular with, you know, the LGBT scene as well. Yeah, quite a diverse, some, some um, older ex, expats that were also living in Uganda that kind of got to hear more, you know, have a kind of reminded them of parties uh, back in Europe, maybe more like ravey stuff and uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and because they tend to be in like sometimes slightly grimier places, you you know you get much more of a cross section of Kampala and society because it's becoming more and more economically stratified. Some of these events where you pay, you know, the equivalent of like 30 US dollars, but that's vastly out of reach for most Ugandans. So I think one of the cool things is that like, sometimes you'll be at a nyege nyege party and like someone who was working in the kitchen will just like dance for the next three hours. And you can see that they've like heard something completely mind opening that night. The parties were always free as well. That was a very important thing. Has the nightlife scene evolved in those past few years since you started out? Are there more venues? Are there are there fewer? Or yeah, a lot more promoters willing to uh, yeah put on like again like uh, more Afro house and just yeah a whole range of kind of like there's just much more of an awareness I think throughout the continent of the range of underground African electronic music and uh, yeah people. Yeah, connecting with that and, and 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 willing to promote it, and it's becoming more popular. It's attracting audiences. So quite a few, you know, more commercial traditional promoters like Blankets and Wine are now booking uh, again. You know, you know some of our acts that you know would have been unfathomable uh, a few years back. It would have been too risky. Uh, dance floor clearers. <laughs> and Campira, I mean, you're obviously touring all over the place now. But what's it like life as a DJ in Kampala? Uganda, East Africa, uh, is there like a network of parties now that you could play at and, and make a living out of? Yeah, I don't think anyone's making a living out of it. <laughs> Unless you have like maybe a radio gig or like, but even, you know, in Europe, there are very few DJs who are just DJs. Just in the past like three years I've been DJing, I've seen so, so many more DJs, so many more women DJs, so many more events, and like more of booking DJs in a different way, so like Major Lazer had their second performance in Uganda this week, and it was like a massive show. And you'd never have seen something like that um, for someone who's like, you know, a DJ, basically. Um, so, yeah, I feel like things are moving, definitely. A lot more promote. We're also, I mean, yeah, moving a lot more around the continent and getting booked for shows in like Reunion or South Africa and uh, in Burkina Faso and. Kenya, so, and yeah, there's just a lot more, lot more of all that happening. So we'll pivot now to a boutique studio. Talk us through some of your experiences there and some of the people that have, have come to collaborate and experiment with music there. So the idea behind boutique studios was again to create a space that um, dealing with a, a couple of the like structural issues, access to hardware, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have a place where yeah, studio time can be um, it's free and you know you can have the space to kind of work longer hours. There's a, um, you know, we, we run a basically a, it's a big villa that can house up to 15 artists and uh, has the studio there. Um, so it was a combination of uh, local young producers coming in and uh, getting mentoring from some. Uh, older producers. We've also had a lot of uh, people been circulating from Europe coming down. We've, in, you know, we, in the beginning we had some issues with kind of like how, how, how to create that engagement and that notion of collaboration that was fair and, 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 and fruitful. So in the beginning a lot of people, you know, wanted to come and just sample and, you know, so it's a, it's a big story in and of itself and the, the, the history of sampling uh, between, you know, Western underground music and, and, and African musicians. Uh, but over the years, yeah, we emphasize just strong collaborations, ones that usually are live projects that can also tour. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, we had Ridlaw. Uh, he's a member of Project Blood. He was also um, the head of the Black Panther chapter in uh, Orange County. 
Um, uh, he was one of our first residents about four years ago. He created, he made an album that was one of our first releases, Afro Mutations. Uh, since then, yeah, there's been um, Niheloxica, um, which is a, yeah, um, um, a PQ and a Spooky J, a percussionist and synth player from the UK. Uh, they came down and uh, stayed for a few months, and they're still there now after two, a year and a half. They never left, but uh, yeah, they, they did a collaboration with a traditional uh, Bagandan tr uh, uh, percussion troupe that's uh, done very well. And um, yeah, just uh, always, well, we think very through carefully about, you know, trying to pair like musicians and have a conversation that usually lasts many months with on, on both sides of, you know, how it can work and kind of how you see these kind of signs, uh, sounds combining. Um, yeah, you mentioned the sort of idea of a fair and even collaboration, I guess, is a, a long and not particularly distinguished history of like uneven collaborations. What is an, an example of how not to do this as like a, someone coming in from outside East Africa to work with local musicians in your studio? What's the way not to do that? I mean, I mean, sampling is interesting because so much music, contemporary music, I mean, so much music traditionally has been made through, you know, sampling and a lot of like great Af African music is made through sampling. You know, Kuduros, you know, was, was based on like soca and uh, rhythms from the Caribbean being mixed with like kind of African percussion. You know, now that's been sampled back in St. Lucia where you have like Dembe and, uh, you know, what they call St. Lucian Kuduros, which is Caribbean artists now sampling uh, Angolan Kuduros. You know, Afro House was, you know, initially based on sampling, you know, a lot of like Chicago House. Now, there's obviously a circulation that's fruitful and important. Um, at the same time, yeah, just taking a drum, you know, a drum rhythm recording and then just using it for a, make a kind of a house track or a techno track that leaves the, the, the African artist out of the process uh, and doesn't have much of his agency in that music and the, the final creative uh, output is, is something that had been happening for years that's a bit more problematic. Again, it's, there's one thing is that the politics of it and you know, what happens to the musicians. The other thing is the act of sampling can still lead to great music even if... You know, the, the local artist doesn't benefit, so it's, it's a double-edged sword. Like, you know, like Herbie Hancock's Watermelon Man is based on a, uh, a hindewu, it's a, it's, a, it's a flute rhythm, uh, a pygmy flute rhythm. It was recorded in 1967 in, in, in Congo. I think that album came out in 72, and it's one of the most popular jazz tracks. Um, they were never really credited for it, but it's still a great track. Uh, Are you saying that if the music that comes out of it is good, then it's fine? No, no, I'm just, I'm just saying that it's a very complex... No, of course it's not fine, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a very complex... Where do you draw the, yeah, the, the line? It's, uh, you just, I feel like no one else is going to say this to say this out loud, but if you're a European or Western artist and you have some idea of like self-aggrandizement or like coming to, you know, I don't know, help the people who are there, like leave all that behind, just don't do it. Stay in Europe and make white people music. <laughs> like, you're not, you're not gonna add anything to the process, you're not gonna, like, people, people in Uganda have, their, have plenty of knowledge about music, they have their own struggles, they have better understanding of the struggles that they face. Um, so you're not gonna come with any solutions, mm -hmm. and if you're just there, to, like, out of your own ego, then please stay away. And Kampira, you did you use the studio when you were sort of teaching yourself how to DJ, or where did you sort of get access to the the controller? Yeah, um, still trying to figure out CDJs, but that's going to happen. <laughs> but people have been very generous. Um, I think Tractor have and Native Instruments have like collaborated with us and and given 
young producers and DJs like myself access to equipment that we wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise. Um, and it's just like a very fertile place, um, musically obviously, but just socially, um, to you know, hang out with other young Ugandans, young Africans, who are you know, interested in the same things that you are, um, and really doing it out of passion, because no one's making any money. <laughs> in terms of the, the wider uh, creative scene in Kampala, not just music, um, I guess one thing that springs to mind is Wakaliwood, because you have collaborated with those guys, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just one other example of, you know, a very, like, DIY scene, uh, making the most, you know, trying to make your dreams get realized. So Wakaliwood is basically a, a ghetto-based film collective. Um, they live in a really, yeah, a really shitty ghetto. Um, nothing um, glamorous about it in... Um, and yeah, they just started uh, making these like action movies on like three, four hundred dollar budgets, or hundred and fifty dollar budgets. Um, it's a, again a bit of a double-edged sword because um, the movies have this extreme lo-fi kind of uh, um, aesthetic to them that Westerners got very attracted to. Because I mean, one you can admire what they're doing. On the other hand, it's kind of like laughing at like, oh look how lo-fi this is, and it's kind of like f funny. Uh, well, they were always dead serious about it. They weren't playing on that. Um, uh, to rise to, to fame, but it's just testament, whether it's in the music scene or um, in, yeah, there's a couple of other localized like microfilm scenes throughout the continent where just people just do crazy shit with basically nothing. I mean, Singeli, you know, is, you know, they're performing here on Friday and Saturday, two different acts. It's not, most of that music's made on virtual DJ, but just reinterpret, you know, reused as a sampler uh, and recorded in live takes. Um, you know, just on a laptop, no, you know, no hard, you know, just no hardware or expensive software whatsoever. And you know, the list is endless. Like you know, a lot of Kuduro stuff was made in, in, in similar ways in the late 90s in Angola. People do a lot of stuff. You know, kids in Africa make their own toys. They don't buy toys. It starts from right, very early on. They kind of have to do the most with very little. Yeah, you, and you've touched on on that and uh, the sort of technological side of things. I mean, uh, I guess. Kenya has a very fast internet. Um, what's, what's internet quality like in, in Uganda and how has that kind of helped or hindered um, the music discovery process? Um, yeah, for you, Kampiri. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's terrible, it's really expensive. Um, I was on Reddit at some point and there was some American who was like, I'm moving to Uganda and I'm used to gaming and I was wondering where I can get like a 100 Mbps connection. And I had to be like, if you get two megabytes per second, like you're really excited about it. <laughs> but just next door in Kenya, the internet is fantastic. But it's shit, it's expensive. They just made it more expensive by taxing social media. So, you know, Facebook, WhatsApp, Tinder, like Uber, even you have to pay a 200 shilling tax, which is like negligible in European money. It's like 0 0.05. But considering that internet access is out of reach for the majority of people, you've just made it even more expensive. It's worrisome. I was, I was talking to a producer in Geneva who's of Eritrean descent, and he goes back every few years, and he was like, there's no music scene because there's no internet. Like, getting on WhatsApp is difficult. And I think that, you know, SoundCloud, Pretty Loops, Ableton, those are the things that have really, like, enabled young people to to make interesting forward-thinking music that is in conversation with what's happening globally. Um, yeah, and like a lot of African governments are also copying this social media tax thing. So 
it's, it's worrisome. You should definitely like get involved if you're looking for a cause. <laughs> I think still like the notion of like digging on the internet is something that's quite still far removed from a lot of you know l l lower income groups generally within the continent, definitely in Uganda and Congo. Um, internet in most cases just means WhatsApp and Facebook, and that's Facebook Lite. It's, it's Facebook's version for the third world, basically global south, where yeah, internet connectivity is poor. You can't watch videos on Facebook Lite, it's just like text, basically. And a lot of people in Uganda actually rely on that. It's not the full version of Facebook. So your experience even engaging with Facebook is very different. And it still remains like the biggest prohibitive factor. You can't create these thick networks. I mean, when they happen, it's magical when sounds from the Caribbean reached Angola. Or It's no coincidence that Afro House started just when the uh, trade embargoes uh, stopped in South Africa. So around 91, you started getting the first Afro House tracks. That's, yeah, so the sanctions were removed out of, from South Africa for apartheid. And you started getting the first like, records coming out of you know, Chicago and stuff like that through South African diaspora networks reaching there. So you know, just testament to you know, good stuff is made when people can communicate. Kampiri, when you're preparing for a DJ set um, or searching for new music, yeah, where exactly are you looking and how do you, yeah, how do you get access to that? Um, yeah, I mean, lots of SoundCloud, Bandcamp, um, but, you know, through Nyege Nyege, getting involved with and meeting you know, lots of cool artists, um, Gafachi and Bright in Ghana, um, like Fatstocki and, and the people who do Pussy Party in Joburg, just like getting connected with those networks and having people like, it's amazing, SoundCloud is amazing because sometimes, you know, you'll message a producer and be like, oh, I think your music is amazing. You should come to Uganda. And he'll be like, yeah, as soon as I turn 18. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, those connections. It's, it's really great when I receive a message from like Colombia and they're like, we're listening to your mixes. It's amazing. We've been quite focused on Kampala and Uganda so far. Um, understandably, because that's where you guys live. But what other cities or regions across East Africa um, are exciting you now when it comes to their music scenes or the music they're creating? Definitely Dar es Salaam, which has had a, <clears throat> a long history of kind of interesting electronic music since the late 80s. Um, yeah, that's got a really thriving scene, a lot of different micro-genres uh, coming out. So, I mean, there's a distinction, I think, in East Africa uh, between the metropoles or the main, the, um, the, um, yeah, the, the, big, the big main cities where there's obviously a lot more mixing and stuff going on, and then um, smaller towns and villages throughout the countries where these kind of interesting micro-scenes developing. So, um, you know, one thing that's been happening is a lot of younger producers um, in um, more rural areas have been reinterpreting their traditional music uh, electronically through Fruity Loops and stuff like that. So, uh, Gulu, which is a town in northern Uganda of the um, Acholi tribe, um, you know, there's that, that dynamic's been happening there where traditional Acholi music's been uh, electrified and that's been happening, in, uh, th you know, throughout... Uganda, I mean, there are 55 tribes, the language changes every 50 kilometers. So, yeah, there's that, that, that diversity and experimentation somehow, like spontaneous or vernacular experimentation happening um, outside of the main cities as well. And, um, you know, something like Electroacholi or, uh, or like electronic versions of Kadori that now, um, you know, no one in Kampala would have heard that. You know, they don't really move even internally within the country. Things can be extremely localized sometimes. Again, a testament within a national scale um, which also replicates itself on, on the continental scale of 
how many blocks there were of sound just moving around. That's, again, luckily changing leaps and bounds in the last five, six years. And how about you, Campiro? What in terms of where your travels have uh, taken you throughout the region? Um, yeah, I've been lucky enough to travel to Burkina Faso, um, which is in West Africa. It's Francophone. It's a place I never thought I'd be able to go, but they have a really cool festival there called Africa Basque Culture. Um, and they're making fantastic music as well. Um, people like Joey Lesolda and Art Melody. Um, you should definitely look up. Um, Nairobi is also super cool. It's like, you know, close enough to Kampala, but just there's, it's a bigger economy. There's more stuff happening. Um, so it's a good place to go and get inspired. A lot of the um, hippie kids are making like really wavy, like trap music and electronica. Um, and then you have like people like the Bengatronics crew um, who are. Um, carrying forward the tradition of Benga music, which is traditionally like a rural music. Uh, it's like Kenyan sukus almost. Um, but, you know, live musicians who are just doing fantastic, inspirational things, I think. Um, I guess let's stay focused uh, in Dar es Salaam, like you mentioned, Alan, and the Singeli music there. How did you come across that form of music, and could you try to describe it to everyone here for people who haven't heard it. Singeli music probably uh, is a very fast-paced music of kind of like interlocked beats, uh, usually with uh, an MC to accompany um, the producer who's, who they often play live. Um, it, it probably fits into a trajectory of kind of some youth protest music, similar to Kuduros, that kind of, you know, came out of the, the, the brutal civil war in Angola and, you know, suddenly you had all these, like, uh, slums uh, where the population, like, tripled within the space of a few years and, like, dire living conditions and uh, the same thing in Tanzania, you know, there's um, youth unemployment is a huge problem. So it's a music that started out of uh, two specific uh, ghettos on the peripheries of Dar es Salaam. Um, a lot of the songs are about youth challenges. I mean, a lot of the song titles have, you know, names like We're Broke or... Uh, life's hard or misery, and you know, the, likely the music isn't as dark as the, the, the titles uh, suggest. Um, but for, you know, it was a music that was—it's uh, been around for quite a while, like 10 years. I mean, a lot of these, like you know, in, vernacular electronic forms in Africa have existed for much longer before they were kind of, let's say, discovered. You know, gum music's been around for 10 years. It's only been about two years that, or three years, it's gained wider exposure in Europe. So Singeli's been around for about yeah 10 years, um, and interestingly enough. Uh, it's a form of music that was kind of avoided by um, middle-class Tanzanians, but suddenly it's like broken into the mainstream now. Um, for a music that's, you know, it's not exactly the most accessible kind of music at first listen. Um, it's kind of conquered the whole country now. So what do you mean by that? Is it something that you'd hear and sort of, you know, on a radio in a taxi in Dar es Salaam? Yeah, you'd hear it in bus stops and bus stations and, yeah. And you've, you, um released a compilation from the CISO crew um, and there's been people from that crew kind of, um, you know, played at this festival, have toured throughout Europe. Um, how has that sound travelled outside of Tanzania? Yeah, very well. It's, um, it has, you know, like a lot of journalists have written about, it has kind of associations to Gabber and kind of uh, Makina and Happy Hardcore. Uh, so yeah, it's got it's, you know it's just a really like ravey feel to it. So I think it works really well on on, on European dance floors. I saw yeah. some footage from a 
event in Glasgow where it seemed to go down particularly well. Were you there? Are you at that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good one, yeah. That was good, uh, yeah. <laughs> where else have those, have, have those guys gone? There was like... Yeah, they played in Cafe Otto in London, they played in Bergheim, um, they played um, Macau in Milan, they played, um, yeah, they played um, well, a lot of places. Yeah, Reunion, Toulouse, like ev everywhere so far. <laughs> but um, they just did a boiler room at Nyege Nyege. I think it's on Facebook, but you should definitely watch it. One of the things that's interesting to me about Singeli, the scene is that Tanzania also has this like similar problem to Uganda of like moralizing. It's either like Christian or Islamic fundamentalist moralizing. So a scene like Singeli, which if you let alone the music, the dancing, it's literally like fast twerking for like four hours. Um, but like when you think about you know that contrast. Um, between you know a country's public image and and what actually happens within and you know that sort of fight within a country, um, that's the aspect that grabs my attention. Yeah, definitely. I mean, having a, a woman with a kind of chador like twerking, um, yeah, it's not an image you associate with like yeah anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. <laughs> let alone yeah Dar es Salaam. I mean, what's interesting about Singeli is also the. A lot of African electronic music is it's still social. It's about dancing with someone else or a partner. And Singeli is kind of like, when they have these kind of block parties in, in, in the ghettos in Dar es Salaam, everyone's kind of in their zone and just, and just, just going for it. So kind of, at first glance, it feels like there's a lot more like connection to kind of like European rave dance floor kind of feel. Yeah, maybe a bit like Gom as well, like from, from Durban, which again is interesting enough, you know, it's... It's, it's, it's quite dark for uh, uh, kind of African electronic uh, music, but again, kind of testament to the fact that Durban's also a kind of deindustrializing city uh, with a lot of uh, issues and also one of the main trafficking uh, points uh, for, for, for drugs into sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa. So all these things have connected to create a scene that's, you know, in some ways starts building a lot more connections with kind of dance floor uh, dynamics in, 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 in Europe and the under, like, underground. Yeah, I mean, hopefully the fact that music like Gom and Singeli are becoming popular means that people are more open to things that don't sound like your stereotype of African music, like it's not, not all just world music, quote unquote. <laughs> to sort of touch on Electro Acholi as well, Autumn Alpha and Leo performed at this festival last year. That is kind of like the, the electronic update on a style of traditional music was born through necessity, is that right? It was a cheaper option for people? Yeah, so weddings are a very important part of traditional Acholi culture. Traditionally, the, the music associated with weddings was performed by uh, troops as large as 15 members. Uh, Northern Uganda went through a very brutal uh, period of unrest and civil war um, that had a, a massive negative impact that still carries on to this day amongst the population. So there was a few enterprising musicians that thought, well, you know, after the war, people had much less disposable income to book these like 15 band troops to their weddings. Um, so they kind of just electrified it and uh, it would be one person uh, would go, just uh, press playback, sing, uh, usually you'd have a camera crew with him to kind of um, film the whole event as well. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, exactly, it's born out of necessity by some enterprising producers to kind of uh, make it more affordable. Are there other examples of traditional styles of music being given a contemporary twist? I mean, you mentioned Kadodi. That, is that yeah, so that? Is, um, it's, it's, it's a music performed during a circumcision ritual for uh, um, adolescent boys um, moving into manhood in eastern Uganda. 
traditionally performed by a troop of four to eight percussionists. That's also, yeah, recently young producers have been, um, um, yeah, electrifying that. And it's actually just within that area of Mbale, where this music comes from, it's actually moved into nightclubs now. Yeah, it's kind of like moved away from its traditional purpose of working young boys into a, a trance before they get circumcised to actually work, yeah, being performed at weddings and functions and uh, political rallies and, 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 and clubs as well. It's also as exciting, maybe more exciting to hear like young producers in the region who are making stuff that sounds like nothing else really. Um, I think maybe Boutique Studios has, has helped a few young artists kind of start to blossom. Um, Slickback, I think, is, is one example. You guys started a whole new sub-label offshoot of Nyege Nyege tapes for this contemporary club music coming out of East Africa. Um, tell me about some of the, the other artists that you're excited about. Uh, yeah, just to contextualize a bit more, I think there's this very important transition happening now uh, uh, within the continent where before it was always this kind of like, again, vernacular electronic kind of styles that would kind of be discovered and, you know, people thought, well, like, you know, these like little pockets of creativity that happened in like kind of isolated islands, um, you know, where there was Shangan Electro or, uh, you know, the, the list is endless, but, you know, from Kuduros to, I mean, Kuduros was, was part of a, a bigger like cycle of music circulation between Angola and Lusophone, um, South America. But now what's happening is that as, yeah, more of these sounds are, you know, moving around and, uh, yeah, you're just getting producers on kind of just exactly what's happening in Europe. Bedroom producers listening to stuff from all around the world, uh, absorbing sounds uh, and having a wider palette of influences and, yeah, just going for it, not kind of bound by, let's say, cultural uh, restrictions within which people still made amazing stuff. Singeli, and I, I can t no Singeli artist has ever heard Gabba or techno music. You know, it just, again, it was kind of this weird coincidence of people speeding up traditional Tarab music from Zanzibar and... Uh, over like the course of 15 years and through different iterations, ending up as Singeli. So yeah, just now we have um, a guy called Ray Sapiens from Eastern Congo. You know, he's uh, also been listening to a lot more stuff. Um, uh, you know, again, following festivals like Unsound, looking at the lineup, uh, discovering new artists. Uh, where they can't download, we also, you know, share a lot of music um, with, with producers in the region. Um, and yeah, just uh, thinking, oh, well, that's cool. Let me try that and let me try that and let me try that. and. And also, like, actually getting to meet them, like, coming to the studio, artists who come to the studio and, and collaborate and, you know, show each other techniques. Recently, um, Ganga, who's, like, a Brussels-based Moroccan producer who makes fantastic music, he was really excited by his time in the studio, and I think there was a lot of, like, back and forth, you know, producers making tracks for some of the rappers who are associated with the studio. Really great rappers like Black Bandana, Slickback, um, MC Allah. Um, so lots, lots happening. The, the label is called Hakuna Kulala mm -hmm. and it's a digital sub-label of Nyege Tapes. Yeah, I've really loved um, what's come out there so far. I mean, a another person who feels like maybe a bit of an unsung hero of Boutique Studios is Zilla. Um, could you tell me about his story and he, yeah, how he's kind of progressed his own music and also helped others? Yeah, another young producer who just was really eager to, to learn and, 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 and uh, yeah, came, came to us and said, you know, I want to have a, yeah, try different stuff out. We had, at that point, we had a lot of space still in the studio. We just started. He moved in, um, started managing the studio as well. And, um, yeah, in the space of a year and a half has started to, I think he's got his first, few tracks coming out on a, on a, um, on, on pan 
Um, he's got his first EP also coming out in a, in a, in a few months. Um, again, it's the kind of a normalization of electronic music production. They can just be like other producers around the world, just getting influences and yeah, just doing their own thing. Considering the success of a lot of the artists and sort of, you know, yourself and orbiting um, that Yege and Yege crew, um, where do you see things going from here? Who's going to be sort of headlining Unsound in 2020? We've talked about Otim Alpha, but him and Leo, they're heroes. I've never seen a bad show of theirs. And like every show, it like evolves into something more exciting. And if you ever, if you haven't seen them yet, if you ever get a chance to see them, definitely go see them. Um, but I would also be really excited to see, you know, other Atrolitronics acts tour um, and to see really, rather than Nyege being some tiny little island in, you know, East Africa um, or being upheld as some sort of, you know, paragon or, you know, a voice for the voiceless or whatever, like, you know, I hope it creates more interest in East Africa generally and we see, like, really a rise in, in other artists being profiled and heard. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very unpredictable because you're, you're at a phase right now where 80% of the population is under the age of 27. Uh, you know, people graduate from university. There's not readily available jobs. I mean, it's true that people have a hard time making a living, but more and more people can make supplementary income through DJing uh, at the moment in Kampala as well. Uh, and that can go a long way as well. People are really seeing that, hey, you know, I can give this a shot now. Uh, the, you know, the, the barriers to kind of entering uh, have, have fallen massively. Um, you know, there's just electronic events everywhere. It's not like it's just, it's just Nyege Nyege or the parties we do. Yeah, it's, I mean, even Singeli is just morphing all the time. So I think there's still that kind of vernacular electronic music, but at the same time you have like millions of bedroom producers about to spring up, just like you've had in Europe for, you know, over 20 years. And, you know, I mean... Obviously, you know, anyone who's a DJ and digs and stuff, and, I mean, nowadays, the, the reaction is coma. I just can't keep up. There's so much stuff happening all the time. And, and yeah, I think Africa is going to be a very big part of that process as well in, in, in coming years. So it's, it's hard to predict. I think the only thing that one, uh, you can really feel is that it's, it's on the verge of a tipping point and there's going to be just, yeah, I, think, I mean, there's going to be like one out of every two DJs in the world is probably going to be from Africa in the in coming 20 years. Yeah, I mean, rather than like, Booking some white dude who's playing Ethiopian house, like actually book a Ethiopian producer because he's out there. <laughs> thanks for listening and a, a massive thanks to Arlen and Campire. Thank you. Thanks to all our contributors on this month's edition of The Hour and thank you for listening. We're back next time with a blend of documentaries, discussion and interviews. Mm-hmm.